Hello, welcome to Season 3, Episode 5 of Art Lives. My name is Elizabeth Delamater. On this podcast, I talk with artists one-on-one about their art, their lives, and how they navigate the world. This episode features Bruce Jacoby. He is a drum technician who has worked in the music industry for over 30 years. In our episode, Bruce talks about touring with rock bands, working in recording studios, and he recalls the glory days of the L.A. studio scene. I think Bruce is a great storyteller, and his life is fun proof that a kid with very specific interests can find a perfect place in the world. Here is Bruce Jacoby. You know, the place where I'm happiest is on stage or in the studio with, with a set of drums. And when, when I realized that I could influence the sound just by the selection of equipment, because a lot of people subscribe to the belief that a drum is a drum is a drum. It doesn't matter. Right. And that can be true, but I've also been more often than not on the side where not only does it matter, it can make a big difference. (laughs) And, you know, as with any tool, it's all in the hands of the person using it. You know, I use the analogy, if you give a hammer to a baby, nothing good is going to happen. Oh, geez. (laughs) If you give a hammer to a master carpenter, beautiful things can be built. Sure. So it's not the tool, it's the person using it. Right. And uh, the reason I quit touring to take the job at Remo, I had a great career. In fact, I never made as much money in my job at Remo as I did on the road as a technician. I left for two reasons. The main reason was I didn't want to be a father and be traveling all over the world. Sure. Because my my dad was traveling. He was away when I was born. And he was never home on my birthday because he had a big trade show every year on that weekend. Um, And I I said, you know, if I ever become a father, I'm not going to travel and have a little kid at home. So that was the main reason I got off the road. And then the other reason was it was an opportunity um, when I was on the road. I was the guy that everyone looked at incredulously and said, why are you making all this extra work for yourself? Cause I changed the head on every drum for every show. Oh, really? Brand new heads to start, of the, start the show. Now, did they have to be? No, they didn't have to be. But the reason I did that, it was philosophical. It was, The way I saw it, I I was really blessed and privileged. When I became a drum tech, it was, it was at a very high level. I, I, not me, you know, hopefully I, I got to a higher level, but I started working right away with world-class artists, you know, really well-known recording artists. And my philosophy was, this is as big as it gets. This is so that drummer that I'm working for, they are living their dream. This is the big time. It doesn't get any bigger or better than this. 
So what I tried to recreate for every show for the drummer that I was working for was the sensation that I had on Christmas morning when I was 12 years old and got my first drum set. Wow. I wanted it. I wanted them every time they took, they stepped up on that two or three foot high drum riser and saw those thousands of people out there. I wanted them to have that goosebumps feeling and not take it for granted. And the way I could do that was I could make the drum set brand new every day. And I felt the fans in the audience deserved it because they're paying upwards of a hundred dollars a ticket. Right. You know, don't show up at the Indy 500 with used tires. Okay. That, that's how I look at it. Right. You know, if, if, if the, the tires are to a race car, what the drum heads are to a drum. Um, if you show up with used tires, you're going to have a blowout at the worst possible moment. Yeah. Or the car's not going to perform or handle as well as it needs to. And in my mind, that was the best insurance policy for that that was the part i could control sure which was you know i can't make anyone a better drummer i can make them as comfortable as possible and i can make their equipment work as flawlessly as possible the rest is up to them Uh and when i would explain that to the people i worked for they would let me do it most of the time there there was only one well-known drummer who i think because in his mind, uh, you only changed a drum head when it couldn't be played on anymore, huh. when it was right on the verge of breaking. And I won't mention names, but, you know, he was the rare exception. Yeah. And the reason I was, the real reason I was able to do that, you know, there's a lot of things we want to do, but we're not able to do, right. is all of the people I worked for had drum head endorsements. Right. So they were... You know, and, and a lot of them had platinum endorsements where they got an allotment for free. So I would say, okay, we have 40 dates on this tour. You have six drums on your kit. So I'm going to need 200 batter heads for the snare and toms. And I'm going to need, I would change the bass drum head maybe every two and a half to three weeks and the bottom heads every three weeks or so. So, okay, we're going to need 270 heads for the tour and you get 300 a year or something like that, or the tour is going to have to pay for the balance. And, and I would work it out and, you know, I, and if there was anything left over, they could, you know, that was theirs to keep for future tours or the studio or at home or whatever. But, you know, for the most part, they all bought into that. Yeah. Because I said, look, there's no sense in having me here unless I can do my job to the best of my ability, just get someone else. But this is what I need to do. And I think you're going to notice a difference compared to previous tours. And when they saw that it wasn't just changing the heads, it was spending, you know, 45 minutes to an hour a day, just getting all the drums to work together. And then with technology, I was able to get to the point where, Um, about 25 years ago, I had this uh, handheld recorder that Roland made and it had a grand piano sample on it. Okay. And I, and I would use the the grand piano samples to tune the toms. Yep. 
And people would say, well, why don't you just use a tuner? And I'm like, because I don't want to tune to the, that exact pitch because in a rock and roll tour, the drums are the only acoustic instrument on stage. Oh, Even the voice is so heavily processed right. digitally that it's no longer acoustic by the time the audience hears it. The drums are physically the only acoustic instrument. And drums are not going to compete with electronically enhanced instruments. So I thought, what if I tune for frequencies that have no competition? How about that? Everyone's going to hear what I'm doing. There's no sense in me being here if you can't hear it. There's no sense in playing it if no one can hear it. So when people started hearing, you know, getting compliments, hey, man, the drums sounded great in the PA. Yeah. Okay, what's different here? It's, you know, anyone can do this. Just I kind of took a little bit of, of a scientific approach to it um, because you'd hear the same complaints from you know all the texts i talked to certain buildings are just they just sound like crap you know a lot of the original outdoor what they call sheds the outdoor amphitheaters yeah the oldest ones in the country like saratoga and upstate new york yeah um blossom in cleveland or uh um uh, riverbend in cincinnati they were built for this as the summer home of the symphony orchestra they right. were never intended for amplified rock music. Nope. <laughs> and you have a hardwood floor and you have reflective surfaces all around. Well, that was to project acoustically, not, a, not electronics. So drums tend to sound just, it, it's like playing in a gymnasium. Yep. There's nothing good about it. So when I, when I learned to, adjust the tuning for certain venues. And I would tell the drummer in advance, hey, tomorrow we're gonna to be, at, this is a really crazy stage. No one sounds good. And, there, and I learned this from working with some of the best front of house PA mixers in the world. Okay. They said, there's two things you can do to a bad room. You can overwhelm it and make it so loud, no one notices how bad it is. Right. Or you can, or you can underpower it. You mix very quietly to try to control as best you can with as little volume as possible. And I would tell the drummer, look, this is a bad room we're going into tomorrow. Yep. So this is what I would like to do. You're probably not going to like the sound of your kit in your in-ear monitors. But if, if you don't like it at sound check, we'll go right back. And that way for the show, it'll be where it is tonight. Mm -hmm. But let's, tr are you willing to try this? And, you know, most of the time they would say, oh, do, do what you think is best. And I, I wouldn't change it so drastically because, you know, they still have to be able to play the show, you know. Right, sure. The, the drummer is the heart. You know, if the heart fails, the patient dies. If the drummer goes down, it, the band is over. So, the drummer has to be able to hear him or herself. And they, ideally, they should like what they're hearing, you know, from, from a purely, <laughs> uh, you know, physical standpoint. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, you know, and, you know, one of the best compliments I ever got, which kind of 
let me know that I was onto something was when a, a well-known drummer who I really respect said, the way you tune inspires me to play. Wow. Cool. I'm like, wow. Okay. Cause that's not what the objective was. The, the objective <laughs> was make your drums sound the way you want them to convey to the public. But right. I realized, okay, if this is having that effect on him, he's going to deliver his best performance. And yeah. then we all benefit because if the audience is that affected by it, then there's going to be a bigger audience, which means we're going to play bigger venues, which means I'm probably going to make a little more money. You know, it's, it's a ripple effect. Yeah. So, um, you know, but my, my goal at Remo was always, you know, I, I always said, I can't make anyone a better drummer or percussionist, but if I can help your equipment sound the way you want it to sound and the people who hired you want it to sound, I've done my job. Right. And, you know, what makes drum tuning so difficult for most people, even if they're really good at it most of the time, there's always that one drum or that one venue where it's just a nightmare for whatever reason. And the reason is there are, there's an infinite amount of variables. And because it's the only instrument that isn't tuned to a specific pitch, and because where you hit it and how you hit it and what you hit it with and where you hit it on the drum head creates all of those create different harmonics. The harmonics are not consistent yeah. from one strike to another. And nowadays we have the technology through frequency analysis where you, you can actually see it on a screen what's happening. Yep. And it's a real eye opener. Yeah. And, and when you put a, a high quality microphone on it and you amplify it through a large PA system with a, hopefully a really good front of house engineer, well, something that isn't so good is magnified a thousandfold. Something right. that's really good is magnified a thousandfold. So all of a sudden that one little drum can become a really big problem or something that's really complementary to the music. And that's, that's where it becomes critical to that's where your technique really comes in and, and where you really see it the most or hear it the most is like, say you have like a punk rock band where, you know, the ethos of punk is to have no technique at all. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Which the, the energy is phenomenal. And maybe the songs are phenomenal, but it's anti-technique in its basis form. Well, if that drummer can't hit consistently, that can be a nightmare for the engineer. And so can't hear the tune. Then. Yeah, every little problem gets magnified and right. every good thing gets magnified as well so that's where technique really comes in and the best the best players in that environment you know this is why so few people get 99 percent of the studio jobs in nashville new york and la and london because they know how to hit for the room for the instrumentation on the recording for the vocalist, if there is one, uh, 
you know, they know how to hit for the engineer. They know how to hit for the microphone for the, for the producer. Um, and, and they, they have the bigger picture yeah. in mind at all times. It's not about the drum track. Right. You know, um, whether you're seven feet tall or four feet, 10 inches for most of us our, the heart is the same size. And when you think about that in relation to drums, you know, you have to consider what is the end result for the music. So, yeah, you could play a great drum part that impresses all your drummers, you know, all your drummer friends. Well, guess what? Maybe a hundred professional drummers are going to buy that recording that sells a million copies. Exactly. <laughs> and so, yeah, you know, we, you know, one of the great things about drumming and uh, and being in the percussion world is we're a fraternity like or sorority like no other it's just um you know i I said this to my son the other day you never hear of a convention with five thousand guitarists getting together every november in indianapolis it just doesn't happen anywhere in the world right you know there might be a weekend show put on by a manufacturer and and hopefully there's going to be more things like that but one of the liabilities of drummers is too often they only hang out with other drummers. Drummers don't hire drummers. Right. Yes. Musical directors hire drummers. Bingo. Producers hire drummers. Yep. Managers hire drummers. Drummers don't hire other drummers for the most part. Right. So it's really incumbent upon young percussionists to to understand that yes it's great to have your buddies my best friend from high school who's another drummer here we are 45 years later and we check in every couple of weeks i haven't seen him in 25 years oh yeah but but hey um i'm doing this recording what do you think would work on this 1963 slingerland snare drum beautiful well, tell me a little bit more about the recording. Tell yeah. me a little bit about the room you're recording in. I'm not just going to say a Remo coded ambassador. Give me a little bit more information. Nice. And, and then go back and think, okay, what came on that drum when it was brand new? Wow. Oh, it was actually a smooth white head made by Slingerlin that had a slight texture on it. Okay, wait, wait. Okay. wait. <laughs> you know? Now I got to stop you because how do you, first I have so many, basically my big question for Bruce Jacoby is how do you know this? But that (laughs) first it goes to, how did you know all that stuff about drum, how to be such a great drum tech? Where did you even find out about that? And then Um, I want to find out how you know so much about drum history. (laughs) Well, so becoming a drum tech, um, It came about through, um, at my senior recital in college. Okay. Um, I was overcome with temporary paralysis on the left side of my body. No kidding. I didn't know. And literally like in mid song, drop a stick, can't use my left arm, can't use my left foot. And everyone stopped. We never talked about Rule number one in in music, you never stop. (laughs) Right. And my bass player, Joel Perry, turns around and he said, are you okay? And I said, I'm not okay. (gasps) And I said, 
tell Donna, the singer, to stall. Tell yeah. some jokes. You got to give me a couple minutes here. I don't know. And literally, the left side of my body was pins and needles. <gasps> and I thought I was having a minor stroke. Yeah. And it took another, uh, that was 86. In 1998 is when I was diagnosed. So 12 years later, I was diagnosed with all these autoimmune disorders that I was born with. Oh my God. That I had no idea until I was 36 years of age. Oh my God. And that was a result of rheumatoid arthritis. And I have a neuropathy condition in my spine. And, you know, so literally my final week of college after having played hours a day since the age of 12 and now I'm almost 24 and I have to abandon my dream of becoming a professional drummer. Oh my goodness. The, the week I get my diploma, I have to abandon what, what I've spent half my life working towards. And I played in a band for a year and I noticed within like 30 minutes, I would just be wiped out. I'd have to like take a nap at rehearsal. Oh, and they couldn't figure out like, like, dude, you know, we, we got to be able to play for an hour straight and then a 15 minute break, then another hour. So I decided the next year I had a roommate who was from California and he, and he just asked me on my 25th birthday, when are we moving to California? And that was in June. And I said, September 1st. <laughs> and he said, really? And I said, yeah. And I said, if I don't go now, I'll never go. And yeah. mind you, I'd, ne- I'd never been west of the Mississippi River. And where were you? I was in Miami, University of Miami. That's right. So okay. on uh, August 30th, 1987, I loaded up the van, moved to California, arrived three days later, sight unseen. I only knew my roommate and a friend from high school had moved out here a couple years ago or a couple years earlier. And I'd seen him once in the preceding six years. Yeah. Um, he actually went to school at the university of Wisconsin, Madison. So I was the only kid from Florida who went to Madison on spring break. <laughs> yeah. And there was about a foot of snow on the ground. It was crazy. So uh, yeah, that was my, my one time in Wisconsin. But uh, it was a good time. But um, so anyway, I came out here and, you know, I never told anyone about my medical situation and I didn't even know what it was. I just knew something was wrong and I knew I couldn't play drums continuously for 90 minutes or two hours. There was, and that's what you have to do. I, I, I never wanted to play in clubs. I wanted to play at Madison Square Garden. Yeah, That was my goal was to play in a huge rock band, be, you know, play all over the world in 20,000 seat arenas. And that's, that was my dream. So now I had to find something else. And I thought, well, what can I do where I'm around drums and drummers? Uh-huh. And I was always good at tuning and I, I would fix people's drums at Miami. In uh-huh. fact, I even tried to start a maintenance class for percussion. And only one other person signed up, so they didn't let us have the class. So I get out to L.A. and I got a job as a bartender at this uh, bar that was like the hangout for like 
the aging classic rocker rockers who had all had multi-platinum albums. They all lived up in the hills in Encino and Sherman Oaks, two upscale suburbs here. And this was their local hangout. Amazing. So on any given night, like Stephen Stills from Crosby, Stills and Nash, Bonnie Rayett would be in there. Um, the guys from Ario Speedwagon. And those guys had a band. They played every Thursday night. And their drummer was this, he had a five piece drum kit with two cymbals and a hi-hat. And this guy was on fire. And I would just watch this guy. And then he'd come up between sets and I didn't know who he was. And I, you know, he didn't look like everyone else had long hair, including me. And this guy had really short hair and he was really quiet. He didn't hang out with anyone. So I, I, and he'd always order a Heineken. So I started having a, a cold Heineken ready for him at the set break. Nice. And I, and I wouldn't charge him. And he, he'd always try to pay. He was really polite. And he came up one day, this was after a few weeks. And I just said, man, I've got to take a lesson with you. And he said, Oh, thanks. I, I, I don't teach. And I said, that's okay. I, I just, can I just spend an hour with you? Cause I have a lot of questions. And I said, you know, I had a great teacher at the university of Miami named Steve Rucker, but I never had the time to do everything that, you know, I needed to do. I, I just, I took a really heavy course load and I never had the time to put in. And quite frankly, I wasn't as disciplined as I should have been, you know, when I was there. Um, you know, the, I think that's one of the biggest regrets we all have when we yeah. leave, we, we realize, wow, I should have taken advantage when I had the chance. Right. But, um, so basically for the next two weeks, I wore this guy down and finally <laughs> he said, okay, here's the deal. I'm not a teacher, but I give lessons to some of my friends, kids on Saturday morning. So why don't you come by at noon? Cause my last lesson is at 11 o'clock. I only teach three or four lessons on Saturday. Great. So I said, write down your information, you know, on this napkin and he hands it back to me. And I go, you're Graham Lear. I didn't recognize him. He was the drummer in Santana. And before that, where I, where I came to know him, he was the, the first drummer with Gino Vanelli. Okay. And Graham was a child prodigy. And when he was 16 years old, he was playing with Gino Vanelli. And I had all of those albums that he played on. And he was on a break. Uh, Santana was taking a, a two-year break. So that's how he was playing with these guys. I mean, he was just a phenomenal musician, still is. And so anyway, I studied with him for the next few months. And, it, and what was so great about it, first of all, he was incredibly encouraging and patient. And the great part was he took everything that Steve had given me that I didn't put the time in yeah. and he tied it all together and, and pushed me to where finally I could do what my college teacher was trying to get me to do, but I wasn't putting in all the work. And finally, and I did that. So, um, you know, that really empowered me to, okay, yeah. even though you know that you can't do this, you can have fun doing this and, you wow. know, keep learning more. And shortly after that, the bar abruptly closed down. 
So now I was out of work. And the guy who took the cover charge and checked IDs, I knew he worked. I didn't know what he did, but I knew he, he knew all the musicians there. Sure. And I knew he was, he did handyman work part-time. So I called him because I, I had just bought my brand new Yamaha recording custom drum set. Nice. So I, I owed Guitar Center like $2,500. <laughs> I just paid rent and now I'm out of a job. Right, right, right. And I, I need cash fast. So I called this guy up and I said, hey, can you give me any work? He goes, actually, I got a job this week installing soundproofing at this rehearsal studio. Meet me here tomorrow at 10 a.m. And I went to that studio and it was called Leeds. It was the big rehearsal studio. Mm-hmm. And this is where Michael Jackson, Van Halen, Pat Benatar, Rat, all these bands rehearse there for their tours. So I go to this place and he doesn't show up. And I'm waiting around and this is where my photographic memory comes to reward me. Okay. I hear, I'm sitting in the lounge and I hear over the intercom, Jeff Chonis, please pick up line one. And I went to the receptionist and I said, that person you just changed, uh, paged, she said, Jeff Chonis. I said, where do I know that name from? And she said, he's a drum tech. And I said, Pat Benatar. Wow. I, ha- I had a poster on my wall in college for three years. Okay. With the drum set from Ludwig for Myron Grombacher, Pat Benatar's drummer. Mm-hmm. had a Japanese uh, custom motif on it. And in the lower right corner of that ad in very fine print designed by Jeff J. Chonis. And I read, he was the first interview with the drum tech that modern drummer ever did. I had never heard the term drum tech. This was 1983. Fast forward. Now it's 1988 and I'm in Los Angeles and I hear this guy's name. Holy cow. And I said, is he here? And she said, that's his office behind those double doors. And I said, can I meet him? And she said, knock on the door. <laughs> and I knocked on the door and he was on the phone and he, he, he said, oh, someone's here. I got to go. And he's got this big white Tama drum kit stacked up that he's working on. And I introduced myself and I said, I've always wanted to meet you. And he was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and I said, um, you're Pat Benatar's drum tech and you, you designed all those cool drum sets for Myron Grombacher. And, um, and I said, what do you do? And he said, well, I have a rental company. I do cartage and, and I take drums to recording sessions and get sounds with the engineer. And he said, I'm, this is Kenny Aronoff's drum kit. I'm prepping it for a session tomorrow. And I just immediately asked, I said, um, can I have a job with you? And he's, he started laughing. He goes, oh, I work alone. Besides, I'm, I'm going on tour in two days. He said, but there's a guy next door in the building next door who watches my clients when I'm out of town. His name's Harry McCarthy. Go knock on his door and, and ask him if he can use some help. So I did that. 
And the next year, they merged their businesses to form a company called Drum Paradise. Uh-huh. And they became one of the two premier cartage companies. So cartage, most people don't know what it is outside of LA or New York, but um, you store all your equipment at the cartage company warehouse. Yeah. They load it on trucks or vans. They deliver it to the recording studio, set it up, get sounds with the engineers. The drummer walks in, does the date, cartage company comes, tears it down, packs it up, either takes it to the next session or goes back to the warehouse. Beautiful thing. And that's what I did for the next year and a half. And those guys taught me the basics of teching, but there's a big difference between teching in the studio and teching on the road. And then their business started becoming so successful that they could no longer go on the road. So they put me out on one of their accounts, which was Michael McDonald. So I subbed for them. And after the first two months, the tour got extended and the tour manager came to me and said, look, um, you know, I know what the deal is. You're, you're actually being paid by them and they're charging the management company and taking a cut. Um, that's all well and good. Um, but we want to keep you. And I said, yeah, but it's their account. And they said, no, we want to keep you. So it was awkward. Um, You know, it was the first really awkward position I was in in the business because I basically had to go back to them and say, okay, um, this is coming from management. The gig is mine. Right. You know, they put me out on their gig. But, you know, they, you know, I think eventually they were okay with it. You know, it, it was definitely a little weird at first and, you know, it was definitely uncomfortable. Um, but that was the beginning of my drum tech career. And then I learned, you know, the big lesson that we all learn from the first gig we ever do that's successful. You do a good job, someone recommends you, and then the phone rings for another job. Right. And the, uh, the next job was um, the sound engineer had to take a week off because his mom passed away. So they brought a sub out. And that sub, the second day he was there, he, he saw what I was doing on the drums. And he said, um, I work for a band named Oingo Boingo. It's Danny Elfman's band. Right. Um, we've never had a real drum tech. Would you be available? And uh-huh. I said, well, as long as Michael doesn't have any dates. And he said, well, you know, I've been told the tour isn't going past September. And their dates were in October. So I did that. And then he had a PA company. And, and after that ended, uh, after Oingo, Boingo finished, uh, I get a call one day because he was leasing a monitor console to Stevie Wonder for rehearsals. And they were going to Japan. The drum tech left the tour the day before they flew to Japan because he went to his regular gig with Prince. So now they needed a guy really fast. <laughs> and he, rec- he recommended me. I'd only been touring for five months. I didn't so, know that the day before. <laughs> yeah. So 30 hours later, I'm in Osaka, Japan for the first time. <laughs> and it was just like, wow. But even then, all I wanted to do was play drums Sure. But I, ne- I never told anyone about my condition, but I, I, I knew, but I knew deep inside, 
I can't jeopardize someone else's career by having the drop out in the middle of a show. Right. You know, yeah. so what I would do, I'd, I'd save up enough money from touring and then I'd start like another band where you, you kind of have to rehearse for a few months mm -hmm. before you do your first gig. And then we do a gig and then I'd get another tour. Oh, sorry, guys, I got to leave. I got to get, you know. So this way I was playing. I wasn't, I wasn't touring to make as much money as I could. I was touring because it was what paid me. Yeah. But when I had enough to live off of for a few months, then I would do a band for a few months. And, yeah. and I did that for the next six or seven years. <sighs> and then I was 35 and my brother called me on my birthday to have the talk which is <laughs> how, how much longer are you going to keep living this way yeah wow you've been out there for 10 years now and I said yeah you're right so I hung up the phone and I I remember saying to myself what if you put as much effort into being the best drum tech you can be as you have with all the education and all the hours of practice and rehearsal, you know, what if I put in as much effort trying to be the best drum tech as I have trying to be the best drummer? Wow. And within two weeks of making that decision, I got the call that changed everything. And that was the Fleetwood Mac reunion tour. Yep. And it was the most money I'd ever made. It took me to kind of the a level yeah and the i didn't have a week off for the next five years incredible i did i in you know everyone has a lucky run sometime in their career you never know how long it's going to last and i was old enough and wise enough to realize i don't know how long this is going to last but i'm going to ride that wave as long as i can <laughs> Right, and right. I'm going to be grateful for every minute of it. And I did 11 tours back to back to back. I would come home from Europe on a Friday night and I'd start a new tour Monday morning. Amazing. And then what was even crazier was if I had five days off, I would get a call from a friend of mine who was an engineer. Hey, um, are you available to work in the studio for a couple of days? So on my downtime, I'd be making money because I'd be in the studio renting my drums and tuning on, on a session. So I knew, I didn't know how long it would last and it lasted five years and I had a great run. And then that's when my health really started catching up with me. I can only And it was becoming a daily struggle. Sure. So I, I thought, okay, you got to bring this to an end and I had met my future ex-wife around that time. And um, I remember saying to her, she's like, how long are you going to be touring? And I said, the first chance I get to get off the road, I'm going to take. I don't care how little money it's for. Just give me a foot in the door and I'll take care of the rest. Right. And that happened about two years later with Remo. They came to me and said, hey, if, if you're interested in getting off the road, and I think before they could finish the sentence, I said, <laughs> I'm really interested in getting <laughs> off the road. So that's how that came about. Okay. You know, so, and, you know, so I toured for almost exactly 15 years 
And the day that I was furloughed from Remo was my 15 year anniversary. So that's 30 years. And it went by in a blink, you know, but that's how I learned all that stuff. But it really started in grade school. So I was, I was really book smart. I wasn't street smart, but I was book smart. I think you had that talk before we, I was the same way. (laughs) Yeah. So I would do most of my homework in class. (laughs) Like as they're finishing the lesson, I would be mostly done with the homework. So I had a separate binder and I marked it English on the side. And inside that binder were all of the drum company catalogs. And I would read these like the Bible every day for years all through junior high and high school. I probably knew more part numbers than most of the people who worked at those companies. And I also read, I looked at every photo and I read every note on every album that I bought back when we bought vinyl LPs. Um, So I knew the recording studios where my favorite records were done. I, I knew who the assistant engineers were. And when I got out to LA and started working in the studios, I'd be like, oh my God, this is where such and such was recorded. Or maybe I'd have a chance, maybe the engineer, here we are 12 years later, and I'm setting up the drums for a session that that person's engineering on. And, and, you know, I'd geek out on them. I'd ask them, you, you know, you had to be professional and not get in their way, but and I was pretty shy too, but once in a while I would say, Hey, you know, you worked with so-and-so. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 That's one of my favorite albums. Um, can you, do you remember what mics you used on that session? Amazing. Or do, can you show me where you set up the drums for that? Yeah. And what I would do instead of just getting the information, I would remember it or I would write it down. So when my friends, uh, I'd say half a dozen of my friends that I went to college with became Grammy winning recording engineers over the years. They, when they were coming up, they would hire, you know, I do it for free. We we were all making nothing. I did it for the experience. They would hire me to come in and tune drums on a session. Sure. If, if there wasn't a budget, you know, for the big guy in town, you know, who charged a thousand dollars a day, I would come in late at night and do it for free. But, <laughs> but that was great experience. And, and I always encourage, you know, soon to be uh, graduates, you know, don't worry about money when you come out of college, get experience, get, yeah. worry about opportunities. The money will come, uh, especially when you do a good job. And, yes. and, you know, doing a good job is the minimum standard. <laughs> it's to be expected. It's not something special. Right. Um, you, you don't go to school. You, you don't show up unless you're going to do a great job. Did you learn about tuning in school? About I did it um, much to the chagrin of my college drum teacher. I had a lot of drums, <laughs> as most of us did who came up in the late 70s. Uh, as as he called it acres of toms (laughs) he strongly encouraged us to have one rack tom and one floor tom but few of us heeded the advice so 
I had a lot of drums and one thing I did, a choice I made at the very beginning, I bought my own drums. Okay. And, you know, I think when you own something outright, when you're 15 years old, you know, you you might have a little more pride in it and you protect it and you want to take care of it more. So once a month, I would rehead the entire kit. Wow. And not only that, I would literally take the entire thing apart, lugs and all, clean and lube everything, not realizing I'm actually training myself to be a drum tech right. 20, 20 years <laughs> in the, into the future. And I, I made a lot of money delivering newspapers and mowing lawns. Okay. So... I made a decision. I will never compromise my gear based on money. Hmm. I, I would rather have great gear and no money than yep. marginal gear and a lot of money in the bank. So uh, I wasn't going to compromise my tools of the trade. Right. So I bought what I thought were the, the very best money was no object. Um, when every kid in school had a $90 snare drum, I had a $200 Rogers Dynasonic. And, and it sounded like it. And I, I put new heads on it once a month, including the bottom head. And people are like, man, that drum sounds great. Well, it's not accidental. It sounds great because I take care of it and I rehead it constantly. Um, so that's where I, you know, I started dabbling and tuning. Yeah. Where I really learned to tune was the first drummer I teched for, a guy named George Pirelli. He's from Pittsburgh, where I'm from. And he was Michael McDonald's drummer. And George was the most anal retentive, fastidious drum tuner in the world. And where he forced the issue was not only did it have to be exactly how he wanted it, at sound check, I would sometimes have to change the heads after sound check because George hit harder than anyone I ever worked for. In fact, he did the product testing for Remo before they introduced new drum heads to the public. If oh. he could destroy it, they would go back to the drawing board. <laughs> so we, his nickname was Bam Bam. That's how hard <laughs> he hit. And you wouldn't think on a kind of R&B pop gig like Michael McDonald, there would be a really hard-hitting drummer. Well, he was, and and he was an incredibly technical drummer. So I had total respect for him as a musician. And he destroyed the heads. But similar to me, he would not compromise on tone. Sure. So, you know, I always tell people with drum heads, there's this X, Y axis of tone and durability. Yeah. Well, George, even though he required the most durable drum head, he refused to use it because it would sacrifice the tone of the drum. Oh, no. So he used clear ambassadors on the toms and coated ambassadors on the snare drum. (laughs) So I had to have two backup snares for a 75-minute show. Yes. and you. So every five songs, we changed out the snare. And when I would change and go to the, the, the first backup, I was reheading right. the first snare. 
so that that was the redundant backup for the second backup because you might need the fourth snare on the encore. And then I think it was on the second or third show I did. It was after the third song. And that was when Michael says hi to the audience for the first time. There's about, you know, a minute break between uh, the last song and the next one. And George removes the first rack tom and hands it to me. I'm like what? It's like change the head. Now in the middle of the show? Yeah. And put it up when it's done. The head was destroyed after three songs. This is the first rack tom. So I do it and I've got to do it without hitting it so hard that it bleeds into the overhead mics. Oh, right. Right? Because you're close, you're, you were right. But it can't be lower than the second tom. I'm like, how am I going to pull this off? Well, I guess I did. And then after the next song, he hands me the second tom. <laughs> and then when he knew there was going to be a ballad, like seven or eight songs in, get up behind the kit and don't make any noise, but change the floor tom head. So I'm having to do it without making any rattle songs. Like, how do you do this in three and a half minutes? How did and you? Then, and well, you do it. <laughs> so, you know, I, I give a lot of credit to George for forcing me to become a really accurate and very quick tuner. And you also had to stretch the head so that it wouldn't overstretch when he started hitting it really hard. Right. Because the, pit, the pitch would drop immediately by a third of an octave. So um, I got really good at doing that. And then the next gig I did with Oingo Boingo, their drummer, John Hernandez, great drummer, he was also incredibly anal. So the first two guys that I worked for were, for everyone I worked for, for those first 15 years, they were the two that were just the most demanding for tuning and accuracy and not only the tuning, but the sustain, the pitch sustain of that drum. So do you think that uh, you will, um, or not will, would like to, um, if you could choose, would you work with technology, um, have to keep up with technology or, or I, I have in my mind um, that Bruce's, Bruce's bliss is sitting in a, a recording studio um, fixing up some drums. That's my bliss, but that's not going to pay the rent for very long. <laughs> well, there's that. <laughs> um, you know, I run, I've done more sessions in the last three years than I have in the, pre in the previous 10. Oh, that's a good, that's good. So, what that show it's not that it's coming back to where it can support enough people that's okay. never going to happen but that shows me that a certain group of people in a certain economic strata in the music industry are realizing the value of recording drums specifically right the way they they were recorded for the 50 years prior to that yeah, that there there is no substitute for drums recorded in a big room 
with really high tech gear and going, it's not the most high tech anymore, but to a lot of people, there's nothing like the sound of a drum set recorded on two inch tape. So yeah, all, all the sessions I've done recently were recorded on the two inch tape. Okay. Well, I mean, I was thinking like, then they get dumped into pro tools for editing, ah. but the master recording of the drum tracks is on two inch tape. You get a saturation there and a warmth and a, and a punchiness that you don't get recording directly into pro tools, nice. even, even with plugin simulators. Nice. Um, there's just nothing like it. So when, when I worked on the last tool record, Fear Inoculum in 2018, Danny Carey recorded all his drum tracks into two inch tape. And then they went into Pro Tools for editing. Huh. And uh, I recorded at John Fogarty's house uh, last year, no, 2019. Um, and I remember saying to uh, someone, the engineer overheard a conversation I had with the drummer when I said, yeah, I think I did the last record made on two inch tape. And he said, not so fast. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, that's how we're recording today. Okay. So, you know, if, if people have it and the tape machines have been well-maintained and, you know, you have an engineer who knows how to work it and can, can do edits on tape. A lot of young engineers have never, worked with tape they 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 don't know how but um there's a value there and, and you did uh, avenge sevenfold you said this summer y yeah that was on that wasn't on the tape though that i think i can't remember if we did that on tape but that was done in the same studio where we did the tool record yeah. Because because Brooks said, I want to do the record where Tool did their last record. Right. And I want I want to be in the room where Danny recorded his drum tracks and <laughs> I want Danny's drum tech. That's how I got the gig. Uh -huh. So uh, because they use they use the same engineer slash co-producer. Nice. So uh, who's a good friend of mine who I went to college with Joe Barisi. Oh, yeah. So, um, you know, so I mean, Joe's been instrumental in a huge part of my career. Um, you know, he's hired me for a lot of things over the last 30 years. And, you know, he, he gave me my first opportunity in the studio. And that was one of those late night calls where they had the expensive guy in town. They couldn't get something the band was happy with. And he called me up at midnight. I was in bed. He's like, Hey man, what are you doing? I said, I'm sleeping. Well, we're up at sound city. Can you come up here? And I lived about two miles from the studio I said, give me 15 minutes, you know. Yeah, sure. Threw on some clothes, went up there. What's the problem? Well, we can't get the snare drum to work. And wow. I said, okay, give me a few minutes. Yeah. I reheaded the drum. I, I took it all apart, put it back together. And, and then I said, uh, you know, and I was as green as they come back then. I just said, how's this? And the producer liked it. What'd you do? Well, I did this and this. I did what anyone should do. Ah. And, but, but now the way I would do it, the first thing, I don't even want to hear the drum. Wh what are you going for? Right. What, what are you yeah. hearing in your head? Okay, right. can I hear the track? Okay. Um, 
is this everything that's going to be on it? Is the demo going to be like the finished product? Um, well, we're going to overdub more guitars on it. Okay. Well, in that case, if you want to hear the drum, we need to go to these frequencies because if you layer four guitars on this track, it's going to wipe out where the drum is now. You know, wow. so I, from all the experience, I know to ask a lot more questions because the end result isn't getting the drum to sound the way I want to hear it. It's where is it going to fit in the final version of the music? Right. And that's not something, if you're not a studio drummer, that's not where your head is at. Yeah. It's, it's, and it's, it's not because you're doing anything wrong. It's just you wouldn't know to think that way. And that's why so many drummers, especially in rock bands, they're not even aware of it. They get replaced. It, it's the dirty secret. You know, yes. Kenny Aronoff or Josh Freese ends up playing on the drum tracks. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, God, even, you know, Ringo Starr got replaced by Ronnie Verlaine, who was the top session drummer in London back in the early 60s. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, not because he was a bad drummer, not because he was a bad musician. The guy could literally come in and in 15 minutes could knock it out. Wow. And give them everything they wanted wow. with no fussing, you know, just, and, and there's an art to that. Not a lot of people can do that. Um, it happens in Nashville. You know, Paul Lyme is one of the most recorded drummers in Nashville history. Why? Because he knows what to do. Amazing. You know, Vinnie Caliuta right. you know, can come in, hear, hear it once in the control room and go out and kill it. Yep. And not only kill it, but can add a little something that no one else in the planet can add yeah. without taking away from the music. So, you know, all of those people bring something. And at the end of the day, like me, we're, you know, most people will never have a drum tech in the studio. Um, the reason you have a tech, it's purely economics. Sure. Because if the studio, you know, costs $3,000 a day, do you want to be waiting around for the drummer to change heads? It's going to take two hours, get new sounds with the engineer. Like we've got a problem on our hands, you know? Right. So, um, you know, if you pay me $50 an hour, yep. it's better than paying 12 or $200 an hour for that to take place over a couple of hours. A new band, you know, what, what we call it a baby band going in to make their first record on a major label, they might have a budget of $300,000. Mm -hmm. Well, now an established act might have a budget of $50,000 and that's 30 years later. That's amazing. I mean, the expectations are like this, but the money is down here. So yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't think the economics are ever, ever going to come back to that. that. That's why, you know, I, that was another reason when I got off the road, I took the job at Remo because I knew the studio world. I saw where it was going. Uh, everyone did for a while, but they thought it wouldn't go as far as it did, oh, okay. which was, I would say, 
85 to 90 percent of the major studios in LA closed within a 10-year period. When I moved out here, there were over 300 studios, each of which had between 500,000 and a couple million dollars worth of recording gear in them. Wow. And staffs of at least five or six people. Wow. And now there's maybe 10 or 15. That's it. That's it. They all went bankrupt because the economics didn't support that anymore. It wasn't a viable long-term proposition. You know, it was a tough business to make money in when things were great. Yeah. Sure. You know, um, so now you still have Henson, which is the old A&M records. You have Capital. Um, and there's a handful, I think Studio 55, uh, Sunset Sound, where I worked uh, this past year. That's a legendary place. But there aren't a whole lot more, hmm. and which is sad. But every once in a while, some someone comes up and they they open one. You know, it's not it's not it's not often, and you know, I don't know how they do it, but yeah, right. You know, I, I think Conway is still around. That was a popular mixing studio, but um, you know, there used to be. I mean, you could rattle off dozens of names just off the top of your head without even looking in a directory. And now, you can the one the good ones that are left, you can count on both hands. This was not that long ago. I mean, and this was it, it, it's in the last 15 years yeah so does that mean that there are some beautiful rooms sitting around still no because especially in a place like la where the real estate is so expensive they've long been long since been converted into other businesses that's a shame yeah and and some of those businesses it wasn't that the business model uh it wasn't that that particular studio could no longer survive. Mm -hmm. Maybe that area of town became hot in the real estate market. And the landlord, if the studio owner didn't own the building and the landlord decided to triple the, the lease for the next renewal. And then it just didn't make sense. So there were liquidation sales of studio equipment all over the place that a lot of, you know, the more prominent engineers who had some money they bought up the microphones or right. the consoles or the, the knee, the old Neve modules used for EQ and, you know, the preamps and the, the yeah. hardware, the mic stands and things. Yeah. yeah. They would have these fire sales at these old legendary studios. And it's just sad that they're all gone because there was nothing like those rooms Wow. and they all had a great history. So, right. You know, yeah. and, and that's that's the best part of going into a place like Henson, which is, I mean, some of my favorite albums of all time were recorded there. You know, like, you know, one of the goosebump moments I, I have every time I'm over there is I'll be reading an article on some classic album or track. Mm -hmm. And maybe I wasn't even aware it was recorded in the room that I'm in. That's cool. And then I'm reading, oh, it was recorded in Studio D at A&M in, you know, October of 1979. I'm sitting in Studio D at A&M, <laughs> you know. 
Yeah, it was just amazing. Some of the people, like when I was there with the Tool record, I was talking to my friend Jason. He was working with John Mayer in another studio. We're out in the hallway, and this guy's coming down the hall, and I just said, Jason, keep cool and just keep talking. Don't turn around. And I think the guy's going to walk past us, and he stops. And he said, I understand you're recording the two-inch tape. It was Paul McCartney. <laughs> and he proceeds to just talk to us for the next 10 minutes, telling us about working in Abbey Road when they were kids. He said, we didn't know what we were doing. We were 20 years old. He said, we were just having fun. It was all new to us. And I'm, ju I'm just there having a conversation with Paul McCartney in the hallway at, at Henson for 10 minutes. Like, this is the most surreal moment in, in my life. That's your first <laughs> and he's time. like, well, I got to get back in. Okay. Yeah. He came out to use the restroom down the hall. <laughs> so yeah, just amazing. So next thing I, you know, I'm text, texting my brothers, you'll never guess who I just met. You know, I just talked to Paul McCartney for 10 minutes. Well, it's about time, Bruce. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> uh, that was fun. But you know, but that's the kind of thing that happened all the time back then. Sure. You yeah. would see people in the hallways or they would go guest on each other's sessions and you know, without those places, that doesn't happen anymore. That's amazing. About 25 years ago, I created track sheets. I saw that the engineers all have them. Right. So they know at that time it was the tape. They were using uh, what the song was, what all the mic inputs were, mm -hmm. uh, what the speed of the tape recorder was. And I thought, why don't I do that for the drums? amazing why don't i document all that and i don't know i've never met anyone else who's ever done that i think basically they just didn't want to be bothered with it but what i also did was i started documenting the pitches of the heads wow and it was funny i just did it for my own reference <laughs> and last year um I guess Danny Carey, you know, he was aware that I, I did it, but I got a, an email one day from the management a year after we did the, or two years after we did the record and said, Danny wants to know, do you have the track sheets or do you, or do you know what drums were used on what record? I said, yeah, give me a half hour. I got to search my, my backup files and yeah you know, convert these to PDFs because they were all in Excel. And, um, and I had everything. And I said, but the only thing I don't have are the correct song titles because we only had working titles when we recorded the drums. Right. They weren't, there were a few songs that they changed the title from when we recorded to when the album came out. So um, then last week, Danny had contacted me about something Oh, Thomas Hawk, from the drummer from Meshuggah, uh -huh. he asked Danny what snare drum was used on Lateralis, which we recorded in October of 2000. So I get the email like on Tuesday morning. And I'm like, I'm not even sure I have that on my computer anymore. And lo and behold, it was on a file format that was so outdated. I downloaded a file converter and it opened it up like 
it translated perfectly. Great. And I wrote him back like a half hour later. I said, Danny, here you go, man. <laughs> I said, we did that track on October 17th, 2000. These are the pitches. These are all the drums you use. Here's the snare you used. Incredible. And I said, I even have the mics. You know? and, and then I was just looking through some old photos in a box that I had mm -hmm. about a month ago. And I found six photos from that recording session 21 years ago. So I uploaded them to my computer and, um, and I sent those for him to send to Tomas. So, uh, you know, it, it pays to keep records. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how many you would sell, but I know people who would pay for a book of that stuff. Well, here's the deal. <laughs> I agree. Cause I would be one of those people. Um, I get hired by the artist and the management company. Sure. So they would all have to say yes, they'd, right? They'd all have to give permission. If, if the artist wants to share that, that's them. Otherwise, it's private. Yeah. Um, if someone asks me, I'll tell them, oh, you know, the mics on that were Neumann U87s, mm -hmm. which is not a common Tom mic. Uh -huh. uh, they're usually used, you know, as a vocal mic. But, um, you know, we were recording in a great studio with one of, at that time, the world's best microphone collection. And the producer, who was also the engineer, was going to take full advantage of it. So uh, I think on the, uh, on the Avenged album, we had, when you include all the room mics, mm -hmm. we had about... It was about $130,000 in microphones on that drum kit. Wow. Because, you know, these are all German mics and Austrian mics, AKGs and Neumanns that haven't been made in 50 years. I've been learning about those. And, you know, a Sony 500 that, you know, on, on, a, uh, on a boom stand 20 feet above the drum kit, uh, you know, you're not going to find those in most people's home studios right. you know maybe yeah. one of those but not an assortment so you know th that's a luxury you know that you know i'm really lucky you know to have been in those situations where you have the the best engineers the best rooms the best equipment the best mics the best drummers you so know if anything's bad it's because i screwed up you know, because all those other things are the best in the world. So I've, I better rise to the occasion and do my part. You've been listening to Art Lives with Bruce Jacoby. And I do have one final story to share with you, but I'd like to ask you to please rate the Art Lives podcast on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher.com. More ratings will change that algorithm, and more listeners will find our podcast. Thank you again for listening to Art Lives. And here is one last story from Bruce Jacoby about a concert that changed his entire life. When I was in high school, you know, I applied to six colleges. Uh, I got into my first choice, which was Tulane Architecture. And I got into my safety school, which was 
Miami architecture and engineering. And I didn't even know, like, for me, it wasn't even an option to go to music school. Um, you know, where I grew up, you became a professional and that meant doctor, lawyer, architect, you know, CEO, whatever. And um, even though I knew what I wanted to do, I didn't think it was an option. So I never even brought it up with my parents. And I was at Tulane and I was, it was the most miserable I've ever been in my life. And the only thing that I looked forward to was I was on the concert committee and once a month we had a national act play at the auditorium on campus. Uh-huh. So, you know, we had the pretenders there, wow. um, Steve Hackett from Genesis, uh, Graham Chapman from Monty Python, uh, Al, Al DiMiola with Simon Phillips on drums and Anthony Jackson on bass. I mean, just great concerts. Joan Armitrading, who's a great British uh, singer and songwriter. So anyway, the last concert of the year during finals week was a band called the Dregs. They used to be called the Dixie Dregs. And at that time, they were the top instrumental uh group in America. They had, uh, they were nominated for Grammys and um, Steve Morse at that time for five years in a row was voted by the readers of Guitar Player Magazine as the best guitar player in the world. And, um, you know, they were just incredible musicians. And of course, Rod Morgenstein was on drums. So Um. I couldn't wait for this concert. And I was on the backline crew to help set up all the band gear and these three guys roll up in a motor home and uh, one guy in a uh, big rider truck with all the gear. And for some reason, even though I was the shyest kid in the universe, then uh, I got really bold and I went up to the production manager and I said, Hey, I'm the only person here who knows anything about backline. <laughs> and he, And he half jokingly said, oh, well, today's your lucky day. And he said, you see those boxes in the corner of the stage? Uh, They were from Roger's drums and they had shipped Rod's new tour kit to the auditorium in the middle of the tour. And he said, and he whips out a Polaroid with a photo of the drum kit. And he said, if you can set up these drums according to this photo and remember rod's left-handed i'll give you 50 dollars and let you run a spotlight during the show so that to me was like winning the lottery right there yes. <laughs> like, like how cool well i i then told him i happen to own a rogers drum set i know how to use memory lock hardware and put it all together yeah so after about an hour, I get, you know, and it was a big kit, you know, it was double bass, uh, I think two snares, three rack toms, two floor toms, and about 12 cymbals. So I get the kit reasonably set up. And um, then a couple hours later, the band comes in for sound check. And, you know, college gigs are always hard. Uh, the kids generally don't know what they're doing. And I wasn't any different. But um you know, it's, it's a struggle for the production staff and, and for the musicians, you know, they, it, it's not like you walk into a regular venue that puts on concerts a couple times a week yep. and it's staffed by well-trained professionals. Right. So, um, you know, they were really patient and this guy, Jeff Burkhart, he was the lighting designer and also the, um, the drum tech. 
but his primary gig was lighting design. And he, um, he could not have been any nicer. He just let me shadow him and all day long and pester him with, uh, you know, nonstop questions. So, you know, that, that was such a treat for me. And, you know, he could have been like a lot of people and just blown me off and, totally. and just said, oh, okay, kid, I got to get to work, you know, quit bothering me, but he didn't. And I literally just hung out with those guys for about 12 hours and I got to run a spotlight during the show and then went back down to help tear down and pack everything up. And at the end of the night, I wrote down the names of the crew and, um, I never, you know, I have a photographic memory, so I, I just never forgot how kind Jeff Burkhart was to me. And at the end of the night, um, he said, uh, or actually we were eating dinner and he let me go down into catering where the band were uh, below the auditorium. And because um, we weren't allowed to go down there. <laughs> so uh, I was too nervous to, to meet the band. I was, I was just really shy and, you know, like, what am I going to say? So um he actually paid a compliment to the school, you know, and it's, it is a beautiful campus. Yeah. And I, but I wasn't taking the compliment. I just said, this place sucks. I'm out of here next week. And he said, well, out of, you know, where are you going? And I said, well, I'm going to transfer, but I don't know where, but my mom says I have to stay in school and get my degree, but all I want to do is play the drums. And he said, and th these were the words that just changed the course of my life. He said, well, these guys started at the University of Miami. And I said, oh, I got in there, but I came here instead. Uh -huh. and he said, well, they have one of the best music schools in the, in the country. So why don't you go check it out? You have been listening to the Art Lives podcast. Thanks so much to Bruce for talking to me. I've posted information about Bruce Jacoby and links to his work on the Art Lives page of my website, elizabethdelamater.com. Please take a minute to rate Art Lives on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. More ratings, as you know, will help more listeners find us. Special thanks to Bill Salick, artist Eduardo Moreno, and composer Nicholas Myers. And as always, thank you for listening to Art Lives. Thank you.